It's my privilege to welcome today David Brickner, who is the executive director of Jews for Jesus, a ministry I've had contact with for some 40 years, and we've had them come to Cole a number of times over many years. He'll tell you a little bit about that, but uh, David's become a friend, and uh, it's just wonderful to hear his presentation of Christ in the Passover Uh, As I said, he's the executive director. He's been executive director since 1996, but his history with Jews for Jesus goes way back. And if you've never seen his presentation before, we do it about every four years here at Cole. But if you've never seen it, you're in for a real blessing today. So, David, come up and share with us. Let's welcome him, shall we? Thank you. Thank you, Jackson, for having me back. Shalom. Shalom. I feel at home. It is great to be here with you, and uh, I just, you know, have been coming to Cole uh, since you guys were on Cole, and I brought the Liberated Wailing Wall there for the first time, and, uh, you know, we sing Jewish gospel music, kind of a cross between Israeli folk and Fiddler on the Roof, if you've never heard it before. It's great stuff. Um, But, you know, uh, things have changed over the years, but there are some wonderful things about this church that I love that haven't changed. And the first is an unyielding commitment to the Scriptures as God's holy word. And that is a mark of the church that you don't see all the time, but it's it's definitely here. And, And second, perhaps even more rare in certain circles, is a continuing passionate commitment to worldwide mission and evangelism. Thank you for keeping that so central. The coal community is all over the world, and it's wonderful to see how God is blessed. And thirdly, more personally for me, uh, just the way that you have stayed strong in supporting Israel, believing in uh, the need for Jewish evangelism and a love for Jewish people and the salvation of my kinsmen according to the flesh. And so it's great to be here. You know, Josh prayed that there would be this unity between Jewish believers and Gentiles. And of course, the wonderful thing is God has done that. You know, Paul tells us that he's broken down the middle wall of partition, dividing Jews and Gentiles. And so we're one together in the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. But, you know, because of that, you share with me in a rich heritage the heritage of the Jewish people and all that God did to reveal himself through the fathers and through the prophets and through the festivals of Israel. This is your heritage too. And in the next couple of months, there are two significant festivals that Jewish people will be celebrating. The first is Purim, which is the account of God's deliverance of Jewish people from the existential threat that was, they were facing in Persia, modern-day Iran. Some things don't change, right? And as confident as we are in the book of Esther that tells us that story and how God delivered, so I believe he that keeps watch over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. But today we're going to look at the story of Passover, which is the feast of redemption, God's deliverance of the Jewish people from bondage and slavery in Egypt so long ago. And for many of my Jewish people who are mostly secular today, the festivals are like this. They tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. (laughs) But God wove his very faithful character 
and his redemptive purposes into these festivals. And Passover, the Feast of Redemption, is, is the story of God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. But as we look more closely today, you're going to see that God, in delivering Israel from Egypt, wove into the very fabric of that story a picture of a far greater redemption of all the world from the Egypt of sin through our Passover lamb who is Jesus, the Messiah. So we're going to turn to that first Passover story which is found in the book of Exodus. And we're going to be Exodus 12, 5 through 8 and 11 through 15. Remember at this time Israel was in slavery in Egypt. God promised he was going to redeem them. And so he raised up Moses and sent him to Pharaoh to say, let my people go, but Pharaoh wouldn't listen. So God persuaded Pharaoh to listen by sending plagues on the land of Egypt. Remember the story, 10 and all? Jewish people living in uh, a section of Egypt called Goshen were exempt from the first nine of those 10 plagues, but they were not exempt from the worst, which was the death of the firstborn. And God told the children of Israel that in order that that terrible plague should not come upon them in Goshen, that they were to do something very interesting. They were to take a lamb, one lamb for each family. So that's where we pick up the story, Exodus 12, verse 5. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Now verse 11. Now you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So that's the historical institution of the Passover. The first Passover was celebrated on the night of the tenth plague way back in the land of Egypt. But as we also read, God wanted this to be a permanent ordinance. And so throughout Israel's history, as we celebrated this feast of redemption, there were various symbols and, and traditions added to the observance, all serving to remind us of the first Passover back in Egypt. So that by the time Jesus and his disciples were celebrating this Passover, all but two of the items that you see on the table today were incorporated into that celebration. Now, of course, the most significant Passover that Jesus and his disciples celebrated was the one in the upper room in Jerusalem. The Last Supper was a Passover. 
So then how much more significant does this feast come to be for us who are followers of Jesus in light of all that he said and did that night he was betrayed? And of course, we're still celebrating Passover in Jewish homes all around the world every year. And there's a whole lot of preparation that goes into the celebration of this Passover. You might recall from the Gospel accounts that Jesus even sent Peter and John ahead of him into the city of Jerusalem saying, Go, prepare the Passover. And this preparation involves lots of different things, but most significantly doing exactly what God commanded the children of Israel to do. As we read in Exodus 12, we were to clean our houses of all the leaven, anything with yeast in it. So all your wonder bread and all your you know, burgers and all of your donuts and cupcakes, they have to go, right? But because Passover occurs in the springtime, it's become a time for a general house cleaning. And in a very religious Jewish home, mom will begin weeks in advance cleaning everything from floor to ceiling. There's even a whole different set of dishes put out for use at Passover. But we have a big problem. And the problem is that although it is the mother who does the cleaning of the house, the rabbis tell us only the father can certify that the house has been properly cleaned. Yeah, you can see what kind of a problem we have, right? <laughs> the rabbis knew the men would be hard-pressed to get the job done right by themselves, and they wanted to ensure peace and harmony in the home at Passover. So they got together and they thought about this problem and came up with a solution, which in Hebrew is called bedikat chametz, or the searching out of eleven. Here's how it works. The night before Passover, mom already having cleaned the house will take a little bit of leaven left over, maybe crumbs from the toast they had for breakfast, and she'll take that and she'll hide it somewhere in the house. And dad, coming home that evening, will take in his hand a feather and a wooden spoon and a napkin. And he'll go on a GI inspection to search out that leaven, looking high, looking low for those crumbs. Now, if his wife has been good enough to him, she's hit it in exactly the same place she hit it last year and the year before that and the year before that <laughs> so that when he finally finds those crumbs, he takes the feather and with a steady hand, he scrapes them into the spoon, heavy house cleaning, wraps the whole thing up in the napkin and then in, in religious Jewish communities like in Brooklyn or in Jerusalem, you can see the men this night marching off to the local synagogue and there's a bonfire burning in the courtyard. They take this package, toss it into the bonfire, recite a prayer and so declare the house now properly cleaned. <laughs> An ingenious way for the men to get out of the house cleaning, right? But, you know, there's a very specific analogy to this very custom in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 6, Paul says to the Corinthian church, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out that old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so, Paul, reflecting on this bedikat chametz ceremony, is telling us a couple things. First of all, that leaven is not just something with yeast in it. It's what? It's a symbol for sin. And secondly, he's telling us that the unleavened bread, this matzah, which we eat at Passover, this matzah is a symbol itself. It's a symbol of purity and of righteousness before God. 
And ladies, I know you must be thinking it seems entirely unfair that you have to do all the hard work cleaning house and the man gets all the ceremonial glory declaring it clean. Well, ladies, you have your very own bit of ceremonial glory which actually ushers in, begins the whole celebration of the Passover. And at this time, mom will take this book which is called Haggadah. Haggadah is a Hebrew word. It means the story or the telling. And within this beautifully bound, beautifully illustrated book is all of the story, the ceremony, the prayers that are associated with the celebration of Passover. And while I don't have a Haggadah for each and every one of you, when you came in today in your bulletin, you should have received a Christ in the Passover brochure. And uh, we want you, I would like you to participate with me. Some of the blessings are in on the second Uh, column of this brochure so take it out open it up if you will and if you didn't get one raise your hand and ushers have extra brochures that they can bring so you can have a part to play in this and as I said the mom actually ushers in the celebration of Passover with what's called the brachut haner and that is the lighting of the festival candles and so I am going to light the candles and I'm going to say that blessing in Hebrew and then ladies, I want to invite you to join me in your brochures with the traditional blessing over the candles in English. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu lahadlik ner shel yom tov Amen Together, ladies, in English. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us by his commandments and commands us to kindle the festival lights. Now, I think it's appropriate that it is the woman rather than the man who lights the candles and so brings light to the festival table because in the same way, it was not through a man. It was through a woman and the will of God that the light of the world came into the world. As the prophet Isaiah declared, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of my people Israel. So then I think it's entirely appropriate for all of us now to recite the messianic blessing over these candles. Together, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us through Yeshua, the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. And at this time now Passover can begin. Passover is celebrated primarily in the home around the family dinner table. And you can see we recline on pillows because as we read in Exodus 12, the first Passover we've eaten standing up. We had to have our loins girded, our sandals on our feet, our staves in our hands ready to take off at a moment's notice. And in ancient Near Eastern culture, only free people could recline at meal. Slaves had to stand. And once we were slaves, but now we're free. And a symbol of that freedom is in reclining on pillows. And the family has a very important role to play, not just mother, but father especially, leading the worship. He puts on a special ceremonial garment, which is called the kittle. Now the kittle is a pure white linen robe, and it's actually the same robe that was worn by the priests as they would minister in the temple in ancient Israel on behalf of the entire nation of Israel. So since the father is the priest of his family, according to the word of God, then he puts on this kittle. And some of them are really elaborate. 
Um, usually the simple ones are like this, pure white linen, but I've seen men going off to synagogue with beautiful satin uh, kittles. Uh, but at any rate, this is a symbol of priesthood. White is a symbol of purity and priesthood. And he also puts on this mitre, which symbolizes a crown in the ancient Near East, because dad's also king of his castle, right? And so, appropriately attired, usually just in the religious homes, he wears this, and you say, David, you kind of look like a contestant from Top Chef. <laughs> well, so be it. But uh, it's not just mothers and fathers who celebrate um, and lead and have a special role. The kids also have a big role to play. And most particularly through what's called the Manishtana, the four questions which are asked by the children of the father. And when he responds, he answers and explains to the whole family the meaning of Passover. And so here's what the first question sounds like in Hebrew, and then you're going to say it with me in English. Together? Why is this night different from all other nights? On all other nights we eat leavened or unleavened bread. Why on this night do we eat only unleavened bread? And after asking all four questions, Dad then responds and explains to the family the story of the Passover. And just as there are four questions at Passover, so there are four cups as well. And those four cups actually serve as the outline of the Passover service. And mostly we have one cup and we drink from it four times. That saves on a lot of dishwashing afterwards, right? But uh, some families actually do have all four cups. And uh, the first time we drink from the cup, it's called Kiddush, which literally means sanctification. With this, we sanctify all that is to follow in Passover. There's a traditional Hebrew prayer that we say over this cup. And Jesus himself certainly said that prayer. And then he said something directly related to that prayer. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Borei pori hagafen Amen Would you say that prayer with me in English now? Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. And then you'll remember that Jesus said, it is with great desire that I have desired to eat this Passover with you. But I tell you truly, I will not partake of the fruit of the vine again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom. Now that was a statement that certainly caused the disciples to sit up. Whoa, this is different from any other Passover we've had before. What is he talking about? He's not going to drink. What, do you, what is he talking about? It's going to be fulfilled in the kingdom. And all the questions of the meaning of Passover began to circulate in their minds. Everything is now blessed. And everything has a particular order to it as well as we follow along with the four cups. And now Seder is the Hebrew word for order. Passover is referred to as a Seder meal. And this is a Seder plate. And despite its appearance, it's not for deviled eggs. You notice the compartments on the Seder plate correspond to the food items that are symbolically used at Passover. And so the first item that we have on the Seder plate is actually called carpus, which is the Hebrew word for greens. The greens represent life. And we will take some salt water, which represents 
the tears of life. And we dip the greens into the salt water, and so we are reminded during our slavery in Egypt, our lives were immersed in tears. A life without redemption is a life immersed in tears. But we also remember that God did redeem us with a mighty outstretched arm. He brought us through the salty Red Sea and into freedom. And so by His mercy and grace, our lives have been drawn from the tears of slavery and we eat the greens to celebrate, reminding us that we now partake of life redeemed from tears of slavery because of God's mercy and because of His grace. And the second item on the Seder plate, ooh, horseradish. We call it Jewish Dristan. Guaranteed to unclog the sinus passages in the back of your head. <laughs> now the horseradish, or maror, as we call it in Hebrew, is the very same word that's used in Exodus 12, the bitter herb and the unleavened bread that the children of Israel ate with the lamb. This is that same bitter herb. And uh, what we do is we take some of the unleavened bread and we say a special blessing over it. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Together in English. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And then we take and we dip the bread, getting at least a teaspoon or a tablespoon if you're brave, on there like that. And then, don't worry, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> you know what happens when you eat this much horseradish? You begin to cry. You have very little choice in the matter. Your sinuses, everything starts to work. But you know, that just amplifies the experience that we're entering into. The Haggadah tells us that we're all to feel as though we had been redeemed personally from Egypt because if God had not redeemed our forefathers, we wouldn't be here. So this is a very tactile experience for us. We're crying, we're remembering the bitterness. It's a, very, it's a moment. <laughs> now, there was a moment also in the upper room with this stuff. You remember? Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. The disciples, they got very upset. They said, Lord, is it I? It's probably him. It's not me, right? Who is it? And Jesus said, the one who dips in the sop with me that night, this night, that one, that's the one. Well, here's the problem. They all dipped. They all did. And if you think about it, Jesus was right. Because which one of them didn't betray? We, we automatically think of Judas, but think about Peter. Oh, Lord, I'll never betray you. And then the Bible tells us after he was arrested in the garden, what happened? He followed Jesus at a distance and ultimately betrayed him. Have you ever followed Jesus at a distance? I have. And the results are always a bit disastrous, as they were for Peter. But Jesus said, Peter, I've prayed for you. Satan wants you. He wants to sift you like wheat. But... I have prayed that your faith may be strengthened and when you return, you go and strengthen your brothers. That's a good word for all of us today, isn't it? If you're following at a distance, Jesus prays for us that our faith be strengthened. Well, bitterness. You know, the disciples all betrayed, but there was one specific evidence. And we actually dip in this twice during the Seder. Jesus takes the bread the second time this time he explains more further. He says, 
to Judas Iscariot, take. And the Bible tells us that when Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him and he went out into the night. Bitterness has consequence. Disobedience has consequence. This next item is called Charoseth. Can you all say that? Charoseth. Not bad, but you've got to get that Cha in there. Yeah, that's right. Just don't look at your neighbor when you say it. <laughs> now, charoset is a sweet mixture. There's chopped apples and nuts, honey, raisins. It's delicious, but it represents the mortar that we use to make bricks for Pharaoh during our slavery in Egypt. kind of looks like mortar, and so you might say, well, wait a minute, Rabbi. If charoset represents mortar for bricks, that was bitterness. Why is this so sweet? Ah, the rabbi will say, because you see, even the bitterest of our toils grew sweet when we knew that our redemption drew near. And we take and maybe get a double portion on the spoon like that. And what we find is that as we eat that mixture, the bitter taste that was left in our mouths from the horseradish just disappears. Which reminds us that even the bitterest things that we have to face in this world can indeed be sweetened by the hope by the promise of God's redemption. This is Hazeret, the bitter root itself, a horseradish root. If you don't have one of those, an onion will do because it's a symbol of the bitterness of our experience in Egypt. But the last two items on the Seder plate were not present when Jesus celebrated, and you'll understand why in just a moment. This is Hagiga. Hagiga is, a, is an egg that's been hard-boiled, but it's also the name given to the sacrifice made in the temple at Passover. So this egg represents that sacrifice. And we peel it, we slice it, we dip it into the salt water, which represents tears. tears because, you see, we're mourning the fact that this is a memorial to a sacrifice that is no longer. A sacrifice of the Passover lambs that took place in the temple, which was standing in Jerusalem when Jesus was here, but a generation afterward in fulfillment of Jesus' very own prediction that temple was destroyed, never having been rebuilt to this very day. And so Jewish people mourn that loss of the lamb. In fact, some rabbis tell us we shouldn't even eat lamb at Passover. We have to have some other meat. And this last item, Zroah, the shank bone of a lamb, rests on the Seder plate to remind us of those lambs that were used in Egypt so central to the Passover redemption story. And we read about them in Exodus 12. God commanded it should be a yearling male lamb without spot, without blemish, without any broken bone. We were to take that lamb and sacrifice it. And this reminds me of another perfect Paschal lamb, Passover lamb, who contrary to Roman custom did not have his legs broken when he hung on the cross. And so did Jesus fulfill messianic prophecy. We come now to the second cup, which is called the cup of plagues. And we don't drink from this cup, but rather we dip our finger in and we drop a drop on the plate in front of us for each of the plagues God visited on the land of Egypt. And in fact, all of those plagues reference di different gods that the Egyptians worshipped in that time. And so when God said, I'm, I'm bringing judgment on all the gods of Egypt, it was a very visual representation of these things that were part of the whole Egyptian pantheon of gods. And so as we, as we drop our drop on the plate, we remember God's victory. The blood, frogs, lice, 
wild beasts, boils, darkness, slaying of the firstborn. Nine times Pharaoh hardened his heart, each time God sent a plague. The tenth plague was the worst of all, the death of the firstborn. God commanded the children of Israel to take the blood of the sacrificed lamb in a basin, to go outside of their homes and apply it to the doorposts, putting it on the top lentil and the two side posts. Blood of the lamb, top lentil, two side posts. And some have remarked that this action actually makes the sign of a cross with the blood of the lamb on that doorpost. That night death flew through the land of Egypt. There was weeping and wailing as never before till Pharaoh finally cried out, Okay, let them go or I'll die. But everywhere that the blood of the lamb was on the top lentil on the two side posts, death passed over that house. And so redemption came that night to the children of Israel in the land of Egypt. Now because I believe in Jesus as my Messiah, and because I have by faith applied the blood of His sacrifice to the doorpost of my heart, when death comes to visit me, death is going to pass over me also because I have eternal life. Praise God for that. Now this is called a matzatosh. A matzatosh, matzah being the unleavened bread, tosh meaning bag, and that's what this is. It's a bag actually for three pieces of unleavened bread, and each piece is in its own section or its own compartment. And the rabbis tell us that the matzatosh represents a unity because there are three pieces of bread in one bag, three in one. And yet, there's a great deal of disagreement among the rabbis as to which unity this matzatosh represents. Writing in the Haggadah, one rabbi will say it represents the unity of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Another says, no, it represents the unity of worship in Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the people. And so on go several explanations. Well, I believe the matzatosh represents a unity also. I believe the Matsutash represents the unity of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here's why. During a particular time, we will reach into the second or middle compartment of the Matsutash. And you can ask the rabbi, Rabbi, why do we take the second piece and leave the first and third pieces hidden? And the answer is, we don't know. It's tradition. And there are three things I want you to notice about this bread that make it right and usable, kosher, for Passover. The first of all is that it's flat, like a cracker. It's a whole loaf of bread, but it's unleavened. And we've talked a little bit about the significance of unleavened bread. And in fact, we're so concerned that there be no rising in the bread that we make it in a particular way. As we roll out the dough, we use a device to poke holes in the bread. You can see the flame of the candle because it's pierced. And then we bake it on the rack. It's striped, unleavened, striped, pierced. We take the second piece from the middle compartment of the matzotash and we break it in half. We take this second piece and we now wrap it in a linen cloth or in a linen bag, calling it afikomen, which actually is a Greek word meaning he who is to come. Second piece, broken, wrapped in a linen cloth, is now taken outside of the room of celebration to be hid for a time. Buried, if you will. And this is such an important part of the Passover, the entire celebration cannot be completed without that second piece. And we'll get back to that in just a minute. But I'm curious, how many of you have never been to a Passover before? 
Well, I really hope that someday we can actually do a full Passover because with all the symbolism, the most celebrated part is the meal. And that's the part I forgot to bring with me today. It's a sumptuous feast, seven courses, and you know you just eat and eat and eat. Uh, uh, but uh, in lieu of that sumptuous meal, I'm going to lead you through a ceremony. It's not a Jewish ceremony as much as it is a Jews for Jesus ceremony. The brochure, if you'd open it up all the way, has a fourth panel, and there's a perforation, and this ancient ceremony begins by folding it. The ceremonial tearing of the brochure at the count of three. And I'm going to count in Hebrew, and amazingly, you'll know when to rip. Are you ready? Echad, shtaim, shalosh. What a lovely sound. Okay. Now, the larger section... Please bring that home with you and uh, remember our time together. The smaller section, there's a place for your name and address. And at the close of the service, there'll be an opportunity for you to put this in a retiring love offering for the ministry of Jews for Jesus. If you do that, first of all, you can get our newsletter, which I'd love to send you because it will tell you more about the Jewish roots of your Christian faith, about how you can share your faith with Jewish people, about what goes on in the ministry of Jews for Jesus around the world so that you can pray for us. That's a really important thing for us. Um, but I also, if you get the newsletter, check the box that says I already received your newsletter because we've just completed work on a book that I want to send every one of you and it's, really, it's like a summary of all the messianic significance of all the seven feasts of Israel from Leviticus 23. It's right on the press right now so we can get it to you. And so fill this out. We'll send you that. Also, if you want to know more about what Jews for Jesus is doing, look at some of our resources. We have uh, some of our staff here today who actually live in Boise, uh, Sarah Dewey in particular, she's going to be at the literature table back there. There's some free literature, newsletters, tracts, help yourself. There's some not-so-free material, books about the Passover and all kinds of other topics back there. So feel free to go back and say hi to Sarah and see what can be of use to you. And then, of course, if you'd like to support Jews for Jesus financially, you can do that in the offering, and there's a place where you indicate the gift, and we certainly do appreciate your support. It's the way we carry out our ministry around the world. But even if you don't give today, you can still feel free to get our newsletter and pray for us. There's... There's never been a time in my recollection where more Jews for Jesus missionaries have been more in harm's way than in recent months because the largest works outside of North America for Jews for Jesus is number one in Israel. We have 30 full-time workers there. And uh, it's amazing. I was there this past summer during the war. I was there in the uh, month of November. I was just there last week. It's a tense time, folks. There are real threats both within and without. And you know what happens when people get in that zone, if you will? They begin to look for answers. And that's why the greatest openness to the gospel of any Jewish community at this point in the world that we're ministering in 14 countries around the world, it's in Israel. That's pretty amazing. Also, we have a large staff in Ukraine. And there's a, 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 a law that's being debated in their parliament about whether or not they will have a call-up of all men, regardless, uh, you know, from age 17 to 60. Well, that covers about two-thirds of our staff in Ukraine. So we're praying, and I encourage you to pray. Uh, and I appreciate your partnership with Jews for Jesus. And we've now come through the meal of the Passover. Hope you've all had enough to eat. Because, you see, this last part of the celebration is the most important for we as followers of Jesus to understand.
Towards the end of the meal, the head of the house will say to all the children, go and search for the afikomen. You know, that's that second piece that was broken and wrapped in a linen cloth and hid for a time. Oh, it's a great time of fun for the kids. They didn't see where it was hidden. So they go running around the house, which is not a bad thing to do after you've had a seven-course meal. You know, work some of that energy out, right? Don't do it now. But the child who finds that second piece brings it back to the father and gets a reward for finding that second piece. When I was growing up, the reward was a buck. When my kids were growing up, it was five bucks. And I don't know what it is today. (laughs) But uh, having rewarded the child, the head of the house then stands and continues this ancient ceremony of the matzotash and the afikoman unwrapping this bread from the linen cloth. And now he begins to take and break off small pieces and gives them to everyone seated at the table. Everyone receives a piece of this bread. And does this remind you of anything? See, brothers and sisters, if the matzotash represents the unity of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, why is the middle piece broken, buried, and brought back? If it represents the unity of worship, the priests, the Levites, and the people of Israel, why is that middle piece broken, buried, and brought back? But... If the matzotash represents the unity of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then we know why. It's because Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was broken in death, wrapped in a linen cloth, buried in the tomb, and then brought back, resurrected by the power of God, conquering sin, conquering death, so that it is no wonder that Jesus took this bread and broke it and gave to His disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Do you see it? Wow. And then He took the cup. Well, now you know we take the cup four times during Passover. But which time was this? Well, we have the first two cups, then we have the meal. The cup that comes directly after the meal is the third cup. And the third cup is the cup of redemption. Looking back to the redemption, God brought our forefathers from Egypt and looking forward to that redemption in Moshiach coming. And Jesus, that when the Messiah comes, Jesus coming to this highlight, this high point of the Passover, having taken the bread, raised up the third cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Habrit hachadashah in Hebrew. And there's only one place in all of the Bible in the Old Testament where that word, is, that phrase is used. And that's Jeremiah 31. The promise of the new covenant was that God would put His law in our hearts. He would forgive our sins and remember our iniquity no more. And when Jesus used that phrase, He was drawing the minds of His disciples back to that messianic promise. And He was saying, that which has been promised, that which you've been waiting for, that new covenant has now come. Imagine how the disciples must have felt after having celebrated this Passover year after year after year and then one day in that upper room in Jerusalem seeing its very fulfillment. To imagine that God in delivering Israel from bondage and slavery in Egypt had indeed woven into the very fabric of that story this picture of the greatest redemption of all. And of that redemption you and I partake if we know Christ is our Savior if we have applied the blood of His sacrifice to the doorpost of our hearts, Jesus is our Passover Lamb. Oh, hallelujah. We've been redeemed. And what's the best response of the redeemed to such a great act? It's to give thanks and praise 
which is exactly how Passover concludes. We take the fourth cup, which is called Hallel. You all know the Hebrew word Hallelujah means praise the Lord. The cup of praise, taken together with hymns of praise, is how we conclude our service. And we all sing hymns from the Jewish national hymnal. You have a copy? Well, you do, you know, because the Psalms were Israel's hymnal. And Psalms 113 through 118 are sung. And the great Hallel, the hymn, is printed in your bulletin. We won't take the time to read it. But it's a messianic psalm which declares the stone which the builders rejected has now become the chief cornerstone. Can you imagine? The Bible tells us that the Passover in the upper room concluded. It says they sang a hymn and then they went out. And this is the hymn. Imagine what must have been going through Jesus' mind. All over the world, Jewish people, are raising this fourth cup, singing this great Hallel and saying, Lashana Haba Beirushalayim, next year in Jerusalem. Still waiting, looking forward. In fact, there's a tradition that at Passover, Elijah the prophet, whom Malachi tells us is the forerunner of the Messiah, he may come to our Passover. And so at a particular time, the head of the house says to the youngest child, go and open the door for Elijah. And as the door is open, we stand to greet him and sing the oldest Hebrew melody known today. Eliyahu ha-navi, Eliyahu ha-tishbi, Eliyahu, Eliyahu, Eliyahu ha-giladi. Elijah the prophet, Elijah the Tishbite, Elijah the Gileadite, come even in our days and bring with you Messiah. And every year, Jewish people wonder, is he ever coming? They don't know of that one named Yochanan. You know him as John the Baptist, whom Jesus pointed to and said, if you care to receive it, John is Elijah. And they don't know of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And it's my hope and prayer that in our being together here today, you might not only be enriched in your understanding of your heritage in the Lamb of God, but that you might share in a greater way this burden that I have for my people. For they are still waiting, and they don't know. But we are waiting too, aren't we? We know, and therefore we wait with great hope and confidence. For the Scriptures say, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show forth the Lord's death until He come again. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.